Okay, so this week, we have a couple of interesting things to talk about. Number one, we are entering into Mishneh Torah. It's the fifth book, Deuteronomy. And in Hebrew, it's called Devarim. However, it has a nickname, also Mishneh Torah, which means that it is a recap of the Torah. Okay, we need to understand what that is. Number two, this Shabbat is named after its Haftorah, because the Haftorah is Chazon Yeshayahu, a vision by Isaiah. And because of that, the entire Shabbat is called Shabbat Chazon, number two. And this year, something very unique, that this Shabbat is the eve of Tisha B'Av. So with that, I want to share with you, and I sent out a link for those on my WhatsApp group to be able to prepare yourself, to become knowledgeable. So I'm going to share with you just briefly, let's get the practical stuff down. And then we'll get into the Torah portion, the Shabbos Chazon and Tisha B'Av. So on a practical level, this Shabbat, we're going to have a regular Shabbat, Kiddush, meat, fish, everything regular. However, there is a twilight zone in Jewish law. And that twilight zone is from sunset to nightfall. We're not really sure. The Talmud says that God knows the exact moment in which we go from day to night. However, we in Jewish law is not, we're not sure of that exactly when it is. That is why you will notice that we always use the twilight zone to the more stringent level. For example, Friday, when do we start Shabbat? We start the laws of Shabbat by sunset. Saturday night, when do we end the laws of Shabbat? At nightfall. So anytime we have to start the day, and as you know, in Jewish law, the night is the beginning of the 24-hour period. As in Genesis, it says, and it was the eve and the morning of the first day. It was the eve and the morning of the second day. So we know that in Jewish law, the, the 24-hour period, the uh, day, begins at night. And therefore, whenever we have to start a day, which carries in its special laws, whether it be a holiday, a fast day, Shabbat, um, Pesach with Chametz, Sukkot with the Sukkah, we're always starting from sunset. However, when it comes to finishing the Shabbat, the fast day, the holiday, we go to nightfall because we're not sure what the twilight zone is, which leads us into a very peculiar situation this coming Shabbat. Because we are going to keep Shabbat until nightfall. However, we have to begin the Tisha B'Av on sunset. So that twilight zone, we're going to have a double whammy. We're going to still hold on to Shabbat, but we're not going to be able to not start Tisha B'Av. And because of that, 
Because of that, we're going to do the fasting. We're going to start the fasting on Shabbat. However, we cannot begin the morning of not wearing leather shoes, sitting on low chairs. We cannot do that on Shabbat. The laws of Shabbat is, in Etzevbo, you're not allowed to do mourning in Shabbat. Even someone who's sitting Shiva during the Shabbat day, they cannot do any public display of mourning. That is a desecration of the sanctity of Shabbat. And therefore, fasting is something that people don't see. You know, they don't expect you to be eating the whole time. So therefore, starting to fast before sunset isn't a problem. However, to lower the chair, to take the curtain off the holy ark, um, to take off your leather shoes, that you're not allowed to do. And then after Shabbat, right after we finish Shabbat, obviously we cannot make the Havdalah over the cup of wine because we're fasting. So therefore, right after we start the Mariv, we'll go into the full Tisha B'Av mode. And then after Shabbat, some shuls will do it right after Shabbat, right after Ma'ariv, they'll go straight into the reading of the Book of Lamentations, Eicha. Over here, we don't do that. We give some time for the people to come from their house. Now, what else goes on this Shabbat? This Shabbat, we do not do what we do every Erev Tisha B'Av. By every Erev Tisha B'Av, the last meal that we have before sunset, we purposely sit on the floor, we only eat bread, and we only eat an egg, and we dip the bread and the egg into ashes. And that's the way we begin the morning. We can't do that on Shabbat. So we're not going to have the bread, the eggs, and the ashes. We're going to have to do su'udat shlishit early. And then we'll start the fasting. And then we'll do the ma'ariv. Then we'll do the, um, we'll, we'll turn the shul into the tisha above mode um, with the chairs and the, and the curtain and everything. And then we'll give people time to come and we'll do the book of Eicha. And that will continue until Sunday night at nightfall. Okay, so I just wanted to share with you the pragmatic part of the unique behaviors we're going to have on this Shabbat. Now, even though this Shabbat is Tisha B'Av, however, it is the eve of Tisha B'Av, nevertheless, we do not do any mourning on the Shabbat itself. And what I mean here is that Shabbat, you have to have a festive meal. You should have a fabrengin. You should say the lachayim. You, you purposely want to show that Shabbat, there is no morning. Okay. Number one. Chazon Yeshayahu, the vision of Isaiah. And simply, this is the Shabbat before um, the destruction of the temple. And therefore, we see how Isaiah, he's telling the Jews, and he's already, he's telling the Jews about, you know, what happens. Uh, Jeremiah has been already for a while giving the prophecy of, guys, you got to change, you got to change your behavior. Um, the king was very unhappy that he was prophesizing about a destruction. He actually put him into a dungeon. And while the, uh, the holy temple was aflame, Jeremiah was actually in a dungeon underground. 
But Isaiah, his job is to stop picking up the pieces. The minute the destruction happens, God is already having the prophets begin to start comforting the Jews. Now, one of the worst things a parent can ever do to a child or a teacher to a child is to use the words, it serves you right. Good for you. I told you this would happen. Those words serve no purpose at all. At all. It, it's just, it's a time of pain for the child, the student, or whoever it may be. And, and what are you going to gain? The job is immediately to start, okay, now that we're in this situation, what now? It's time to start giving comfort. Time to start giving guidance. Time to start giving support. Now, based on this, I want to share with you an unbelievable teaching of the holy Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev was a student of the Mazritcher Magid. He was a classmate of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe. They were very close. Their children actually married, so they were mechotonim. And this Rabbi Levitzik Bardicheva gives a very interesting metaphor on why the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av is called Shabbat Chazon, the Shabbat of vision. And he says as follows. He says that a father bought for his son a nice, beautiful suit for Shabbat. The kid goes to shul with his nice suit, but he's a kid. And instead of sitting nicely, he's outside playing. He's a little bit of a wild nature. And he falls and he ruins the suit. And his father is understanding. And his father buys him a second suit. Has a talk with him. And then buys him a second suit. The same thing happens now in the second suit. The father buys this, his son a third suit. But he doesn't give it to the son. Rather, he takes the suit and he puts it in the closet. And every once in a while, he takes the son and shows him, you see that suit? It's bought, it's made, it's yours. As soon as you're ready to be responsible enough to wear it. Says that I believe Hashem gave us the first base of Migdash. We were wild and we destroyed it. Hashem gave us the second temple, the holy temple, the Bet HaMikdash. We were wild and we destroyed it. Hashem constructed the third holy temple in heaven. And once a year on the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av, Rabbi Levitik says that every soul receives a vision. And the soul sees that the holy temple, the third and final holy temple, is already built and it's waiting for us. And Hashem is showing it to us. And He's telling us, as soon as you're ready. It's here for you. As soon as you can be responsible enough to have it, you will receive it. Okay. Interesting take on the Shabbos being called Shabbat Chazon. We're not talking just about the vision of Isaiah. We're talking about the vision that you and I and every single one of us is going to see. I, 
our physical eyes don't see it. So there's a statement in the Talmud that when a miracle took place and only Daniel saw it, it says that Daniel saw it and the rest trembled in fear. And the Talmud questions one second. If they didn't see the miracle that was taking place, only Daniel saw it, why were they trembling? And the Talmud answers, Mazlayu Chazi. Simply Mazlayu is Aramaic for Mazal, luck, which would mean their luck sort. However, Chassidus explains what does it mean, luck, the luck sort, and explains what it means is that the word Mazal also comes from the word Nozel, to drip. And what does it mean? It means that we have the layers of our soul, the three lower levels, which is within us, the thought, the, the speed, I'm sorry, the intellect, the emotions, and the garments, the thought, speech, and action of the soul. However, then there is the higher levels, will, faith, there's the yechida, the peace of God, that encompasses, it doesn't permeate because it's too infinite. However, from those higher levels of the soul is a drip. It drips into our consciousness. And that's why suddenly out of nowhere, we'll suddenly feel a certain yearning, a certain love for God, a certain identity with our fellow Jews, a certain identity with the Holy Land. And like, why? Where did this come from? Why am I suddenly having this feeling? And the answer is that your mazal saw something and it's dripping it down to you. So too with this vision that Rabbi Levitzak Baditchev is talking about. Each and every one of us will see it. Our soul, our mazal will see it. And if we allow it to, if we lower the noise in our mind, we will consciously see that there's a drip coming from our soul into our conscious mind. And suddenly we're going to feel a strong bond between us, all the Jewish people, Torah, God, the Holy Temple, the land of Israel. Okay, now let's talk about the Torah portion. And then let's talk about What's going on in the fifth book? So every single time Moses gives over the word of God, it usually says, and God told Moses to command the Jewish people. Or, and Moses told the Jewish people, this is what God has commanded me to say. However, the opening of Deuteronomy is, These are the words which Moses said to the Jewish people doesn't say that God told him. It doesn't say that God told him to tell the Jewish people. What's going on here? So what we're going to learn is that 37 days before Moses passes away, Moses does the entire book of Deuteronomy. And basically, he's gathering the Jewish people together for 37 days. He's giving his final so to speak, will and testament, and he's giving his farewell speech to the Jewish people, you know, empowering them, warning them, strengthening them. And that's what's going on here. In the last 37 days of his life, 
he went over the entire mitzvot of the Torah with the Jewish people. And not only that, but he explained it to them well. He didn't want that he should pass away before the Jewish people clearly understood the five books of Moses, the Holy Torah. However, in the beginning, he also is giving rebuke. And Rashi tells us that Moses learned from Jacob. What is the closing Torah portion of Genesis? It's Vayechi. And it tells us about Jacob's final moments. In Vayigash, then Vayechi. And he gives his son's rebuke. Reuven, you got angry and you did something with the bed of, of my bed being in from Rachel's tent and bring it to Leah's tent. He tells Shimon and Levi, you guys had a temper fit and you wiped out the entire, the entire kingdom of Shechem because the prince raped your sister. So you killed everyone. You let your anger get the best of it. You try to kill Joseph. He's admonishing the, the, his children. So Moses learned out from here that hold back from the rebuke until right before you pass away. And Rashi tells us in the name of our sages, there's different reasons why to do this. Number one, you don't want after you, you give rebuke that they should have to see you. And every time they see you, they're going to be embarrassed. You also don't want to give rebuke and then another thing goes wrong and you have to give rebuke again. So therefore, Moses held it in. I mean, obviously he dealt with what he had to deal with throughout the 40 years, but the rebuke, the, the big Musser speech, he doesn't give until the end before he passes away. Another thing is, he didn't want to give rebuke before he started conquering Israel for them. So the Jews are going to say, oh, really? You brought us into the desert, promised us the land, didn't bring us into the land, but you're giving us rebuke. So he didn't want that. So first he conquered the other side of the Jordan River, gave it to two and a half tribes. And then now that he's already fulfilling his promise, he's beginning the conquering and the inheritance of the land of Israel. Now he gives rebuke. Another important thing to know is that if you read the verses, you will not understand the rebuke here because he's speaking in code. Because he's giving rebuke, he doesn't want to say the exact sins. For example, he calls a place Dizahav. What's, what's Dizahav? So really, he's hinting to them. Dizahav means sufficient or oversufficient amount of gold. He was hinting to them the golden calf. He calls another place Tophel the Lovan. He's hinting to them that they were complaining about the white mana and so forth and so on. He's hinting to them what's going on. So from here, we also know, I want to share with you another concept. In Torah, there are different type of letters. What does that mean? Different type of words. For example, when you give a parable, you want the parable to help explain. When you give a riddle, you want to pique the interest, but you don't want to give away the, the, the answer. So in Torah, 
you have very different types of teachings. Now, another thing I want to share with you is there's something called otiot masbirot and otiot atzmiot. And what does that mean? There are essence letters and there are explanatory letters. Sometimes you want to give the essence over. You're not focusing on being explanatory, but rather you're looking to give over the essence of what you're trying to transmit. For example, my friends, the five books of Moses are not explanatory. For example, it says that you should put on tefillin in the Torah four times. Doesn't tell you at all how to put on tefillin and what the tefillin need to be made of. It says vishachat. You have to have a ritual slaughtering to make an animal kosher. You will not find anywhere in the Chumash where it tells you the five primary laws which define whether the ritual slaughtering is kosher or not kosher. And I can go on and on and on. The sukkah, it doesn't tell you how big the sukkah could be and how small it could be. It doesn't give you the minimum size, doesn't give you the top size. And even in the four elements that we use on Sukkot, the Lulav, the Etrog, the uh, Hadassim and the Arovot, it doesn't say in the Torah, it doesn't explain it to us exactly which fruit it is, and the sages have to figure it out. So the Torah isn't busy keep being explanatory, rather it's giving the essence, the entire seed in which lies the entire DNA of whatever this mitzvah is. And then God gives us the 13 rules of extrapolation, which is what the Talmud is all about. Extrapolating from the essence words, the explanatory words, so that we have a clear understanding of what exactly every mitzvah is. Now, Moses, when it comes to the telling the Jews the stories of all the places that they went and where they angered God and they should learn from their mistakes, Moses is being super careful not to be explanatory. He knew that these people knew well, well, their shame and their guilt and their difficult lessons they learned. So he's just bringing it to their intention, attention without rubbing it into their face. Now, the question is, make up your mind, Moses. Either you're going to give rebuke or you're not going to give rebuke. You're going to give rebuke, but it's going to be in code. So to understand this, I want to share with you what Moses is really doing here. Rebuke is never about breaking the person. A horse needs to be broken in. A human being should never be broken in. A Jew has to always be empowered, has to always be taught to have pride and self-respect and belief. And as I spoke 
this week in the shul on Monday night, before you even begin to talk about our sins, we have to say, Avinu Malkeinu, my father, my king. We need to first completely embrace the eternal love and the unconditional love that God has for us. Now, I want to emphasize what the word unconditional love means. If one believes that God loves the righteous, the pious, the scholars, the mitzvah doers, but he does not like the sinners, then we're saying clearly that God has no unconditional love, not even to the righteous. If one would think that a Jew who is not fasting on Yom Kippur takes a shower, drives a car, eats a pork sandwich on his way to work, if you can believe that God loves that Jew any less than God loved Moses, then what you're saying is that God did not unconditionally love Moses. Because if he unconditionally loves, that means that the entire righteousness and the entire sinning does not play a role in God's love for us. Now I want to share with you there's an interesting statement that they teach. You have to love everyone, but you don't have to like everyone. Now, what's the difference in love and like? Are we playing semantics here? Are we playing games? No. I want to share with you what it means on a practical level. A parent loves their child, but doesn't always like the way their child is behaving. Like is about the doing Love is about the being. Hence, Moses, when he gives rebuke, he does not in any form or fashion want the Jewish people to feel that God loves them any less because of the mistakes they're made. Retribution is not, retribution is not at all about about not liking hating. Tishabov, God said, I will redirect my anger on stones and gold and mortar and not on my children. I will destroy my home, but not my people. Anger of God is only about retribution is to fix. We're not talking about who spilt the milk. We're talking about the spilt milk. And hence, I spoke to the Rebbe's, one of the Rebbe's um, people that worked for him. This person, his job was to take care of the Rebbe's house. And if the Rebbe needed something fixed or driven somewhere, his name is Gansberg. And he tells a very interesting story. The Rebbe was once quite upset with something he did, and the Rebbe expressed himself. And this man, Gansberg, said, it's, it's printed, it's printed in a book. And 
he writes he writes over there that this per the, the he Gansberg was started answering the Rebbe and defending himself and justifying himself. And the Rebbe looked at him and said, Why are you answering me? And this man Gansberg said that with all the years that he's worked for the Rebbe, he understood immediately that the Rebbe is saying, What why are you justifying yourself? Why are you defending yourself? There's no need for you to defend yourself. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the action that was done. So what is it going to help if you defend yourself? Drebbe didn't fire him. Drebbe didn't punish him. Drebbe was expressing his, his unhappiness with what was done. And the minute the Rebbe saw that Gansberg was defending himself, the Rebbe said, no, 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 we're not talking about the same thing. You're not hearing me. That's what Moses is doing here. The most important thing we need to teach ourselves and our children and our students, and the most important thing we need to reparent ourselves, because many of us, our parents, didn't do this right. And I'm not judging them either. But many times we were told that we are wild rather than we are behaving wildly. We are told that we are irresponsible rather than being told that was an irresponsible action. So it's very important to understand what Moses is doing here. Not only that, but Moses is telling the Jewish people in verse number two, he says that there's 11 day travel distance from the Mount Seir to Kaddish Barnea. And he says that you did it in three days. So God was rushing you into Israel. And what did you do? There was the story of the spies, the rebellion against the land of Israel, and now we're spending 40 years in the desert. What do you hear Moses telling the Jewish people? Ah, boy, you guys messed it up. So look what happens. God's rushing you into the Holy Land, miraculously, traveling 600,000 people, livestock, animals, tents, and golds, and everything. Rushes you an 11-day journey, happens in three days, and then you end up traveling for 40 years. And in that 40 years, I too lost my right to enter the land of Israel. But that's not what Moses was saying. He wasn't saying, you guys goofed up. He was saying quite the contrary. When God saw after miracles upon miracles, splitting of the sea, the Ten Commandments, everything. You guys got to see and hear what the greatest prophets didn't get to see and hear. And then you make a golden calf. And then you end up speaking against the land of Israel. Moses said, I had a choice then. I could have argued with God. And tell God, no, take them into the land of Israel. But I knew you weren't ready. So I could have said, God, 
shower upon them such great divine revelation, which will crack their coarseness, soften their heart, and make them loyal. However, Moses says that if I would have done that, then I would not have prepared you to be able to absorb and internalize what God is giving you. It would have come from above, below, forcefully. That's not love. Love is to take the long route. Okay, guys, let's take the long route. Let's go for 40 years. Let's make mistakes. Let's have challenges. Let's overcome the challenges. Let's have temptations. Let's overcome the temptations. Let us succumb to the temptations and then learn how to rectify the sin. That's what Moses is doing here. He's pointing out what you're afraid that you're going to botch up and God's going to destroy you. Absolutely not. You see what God is doing. God's taking the long route. He didn't force you into Israel. He didn't say sink or swim. He said, okay, let's prepare you. Now, we just had the great Arizal, the Ariha Kadosh of Isaac Luria. We just had his Yom Hilula, the day of his passing, the fifth of Of. So I want to share with you a story of the Arizal, a story that was told to us by the Rebbe. And then I want to share with you what the Rebbe taught us on this story. So the Arizal says that and the story goes that the Arizal said to his students, one Arab Shabbat, excuse me, come, let us not go back home. Let us travel towards Jerusalem. Some of the students said, uh, we, we need to, you need to get our wife's permission. We can't just leave and that's it. And that Rizal said, forget it. Then th let's not go. And then that Rizal told them this. The story was said by the Rebbe. It's a verified story. That Rizal said, were you to have had faith in your teacher, knowing that I've never taken you astray and everything I teach you is sourced in the Torah. Were you to have faith in me, and we would have gone to Jerusalem, we would have brought Mashiach. And that's why I asked you to come, because I saw that it was an auspicious moment that us together, by preparing ourselves in sanctity and spending a Shabbat of, of real prayer and Torah study and bringing down the walls of exile, we would have brought down the Bet Migdash on this Shabbat and we would have ended the exile. And then the Rebbe, after he tells the story, says like this. Listen to what the Rebbe says. He says that Rizal clearly had Ruach HaKodesh. He had divine inspiration and he was able to see the future. So that Rizal saw clearly that after the students did not rise up to the occasion, and Mashiach did not come, there's going to be the Spanish Inquisition, there's going to be the Holocaust, there's going to be the, the um, terrorist acts, Jews are going to be killed by the millions, they're going to be bloodshed, suffering, poverty, buildings falling. So the Rebbe asked, 
one would expect that the Arizal was angry at his students. You guys could have saved us from all of this. You could have saved six million lives. You could have saved every expulsion. You could have saved the suffering, the sicknesses. All you had to do is have a little bit of faith and look what you did. And the Rebbe said then, it was unbelievable to hear the Rebbe explain this. The Rebbe said that the Ariza was a true teacher. And a true teacher never feels that way about his students. A good teacher, the Rebbe said, has only one thought in his mind. Oh, I thought you were ready. You're not ready? Okay, let's go back to where you are and let's prepare you. I thought you were ready. The Rebbe says that's what Arizal said. I thought you guys were ready. But you're not ready. Okay, then let's not. Let's take it from where you are. We'll go the long route. We'll have to go through the Holocaust, the Spanish Inquisition, the suffering, the sicknesses, the poverty, and everything. But if that's where you are, then I have to strengthen you, prepare you, and take you through it all. What did Isaac tell Esau? What, what did Jacob tell Esau after they made peace? They hugged and they kissed. And Esau said, come, let us go. We have did the work. We can go now to Mashiach. And Jacob answers Esau, you're ready, I'm ready, but I have young ones. And if I push them beyond their capacity, they will die. So when Moshe gives us retribution, and when Moshe, when Hashem gives us punishment, and when there's rebuke, hear what they're saying. Okay, I thought you were ready to take this shortcut. You're not. No worries. We'll do it the long way. It's always about the healing and never about the putting down. Now, that is in short what is going on here in this entire Torah portion where he keeps on telling them what the story is, what happened. I will tell you something unbelievable. <laughs> and that is, remember I told you that sometimes there's essence letters and sometimes there is explanatory letters. I want you to know that if you read this Torah store portion this week and next week, where Moses is retelling the story, you will know everything but the story. He doesn't carry it in chronological orders. He's intertwining things that happened and here and there. And without Rashi, without the commentaries, we would be lost. However, understand that Moses is doing this all for a purpose. Because to have told the story in explanatory ways, there wouldn't have been the layers upon layers of depths and secrets that are hidden here. That on and on and on we're revealing and understanding deeper and deeper. So while I didn't tell you the exact details of what Moses is saying, I'm just telling you that Moses is taking us through the entire story. We left Egypt. It was glorious. There was miracles taking place. And then because we weren't ready, we were still, still too stuck in the slave mentality of Egypt that they pressed upon us. All the miracles were amazing. 
but deep inside our genetics didn't change yet. Our brain wiring didn't change. You don't change when you have a near-death experience. You don't change when you see miracles. You change step by step by habitual behavior and meditation and study, rewiring the brain of how you see yourself. And that's what's going on here. Now, with that being said, I wanted to briefly talk about the topic which I texted would be the, the discussion of this, of this class. And I, as I always do, I give you insights, but then by the end, I wanna share with you a teaching that I learned. Faith and knowledge. Now, why am I going to talk to you about this? Because I started off our discussion by saying that something changed here in the fifth book of Moses. It doesn't say, and God told me to say, or it doesn't say, and God told Moses, tell the Jewish people. It says, these are the words of Moses. And the commentaries share with us that what does it mean, these are the words of Moses? It means that this wasn't like the first four books. In the first four books, what Moses told us wasn't prophecy. Rather, literally God spoke through his voice box. So much so that because of something that happened when he was a child sitting on Pharaoh's lap, lap where he burnt his tongue and his lips and he ended up with a harsh speech impediment. You remember at the burning bush, he keeps on telling God, I can't be the one to talk. I don't know how to talk. I have a speech impediment. But whenever he gave over the words of Torah, his, he spoke crystal clear and the Jews knew that this isn't Moses talking. It's God talking through his voice box. Hence, the words of the Torah are called Mepi Hagvura. We heard it from the mouth of the Almighty. No, we didn't. We heard the first two of the Ten Commandments from the mouth of the Almighty. Everything else we heard from the mouth of Moses. No, we heard it Mepi Hagvura. It all came from the mouth of the Almighty, the voice box of Moses, and the lips of Moses was nothing more than a megaphone. You're not going to sit and listen to the president talk and you're watching TV or you're listening to a speaker or the radio. You're not going to say, oh, I heard what the radio has to say. You're going to say, I heard what the president has to say. So, too, when the Jews saw Moses talking and heard Moses talking without a speech impediment, they didn't say Moses said. They said God said. And that's why Moses, in his words, quite often talks about God in the first sense. He talks about, and I will give the reins. No, you won't. God gives the reins. Because it wasn't Moses talking. It was the megaphone. Moses was a megaphone, a microphone, a pipe, whatever you want to call it. And God was talking. Now, in Deuteronomy, we talk about it being prophecy. And there are ever questions, how can you say that the book of Deuteronomy was prophecy when Maimonides clearly tells us in the laws, and he, he has the 13 animamans, he talks about the laws of a believer versus the laws of an, a heretic. And he says as follows, if anyone believes that any one of the words of the five, not four, five books of Moses, 
is not from the mouth of God, that's a heretic. But one second, we just said that when the verse said, these are the words that Moses spoke, it's because it wasn't like the first four books. So what's going on here? Make up your mind. Is every word of the Holy Torah from the mouth of God? Or is the first four books was from the mouth of God? And the fifth book is the words of God, but coming through prophecy. Just like Isaiah, his words weren't his words. They were the words of God, but not from the mouth of God. It was through prophecy. And so has God told me, and so has God said. To understand this, we need to understand what's going on here. What is the purpose of us receiving the Torah and studying Torah and doing mitzvot? And the answer here is something which is really, it's really a shocker. Because it seems to be that we are getting further and further away from God. On Mount Sinai, the Jews heard the Ten Commandments directly from God. The first four books, they heard the words of God through the megaphone of Moses. The fifth book, they're now hearing the words of Moses. In the books after, the books after the prophets and the scriptures, they're hearing not even like the words of Moses, but rather they're hearing what was shown through different visions. It's a step further away from God, so to speak. After that, we have the judges. And after the judges, we have the sages. And then we have the ones from the Mishnah, the ones from the Talmud. It's further and further away from divine revelation and more and more human fingerprints. And the question is, why? Why is it getting weaker and weaker? Oh, well, the answer is because we're not as holy as they used to be. We're sinners. And as the Talmud says, if they were people, we were like donkeys. What's really going on? And to understand this, I want to go back to the topic I shared. Faith begins where intellect ends. And if we are ever, ever too lazy to work hard and diligently on understanding, and rather we say, it's okay, I don't need to understand because I believe. And if I don't understand how it works, if I don't understand how God is the soul of the world and the creator and he's the epi if I don't understand it, if I just believe Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, I'm a Jew, I'm a good Jew, I'm a believer. You should know that if anything that we can digest intellectually, we don't and we fall back on faith, we are doing it wrong. Because the, our job is to take the encompassing faith and keep on drinking it in, into our minds and into our hearts. Hence, what yesterday I could only believe, today I could understand, and today I can believe in something far greater. 
And that is the journey of the Torah and the journey of the Jew. The journey is from going from standing at Mount Sinai, completely overwhelmed to the point where the verse says that they kept on dying and God kept on resurrecting them. They couldn't absorb anything. It was just faith. They couldn't understand what was going on. And then slowly but surely, evolving, 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 until the Talmud doesn't talk about, and God said, let it be so and so. No. It says that Hillel and Shammai are arguing over what God said. Hillel understands from the verse, according to the rules, and this is the law. Shammai says, no, according to the rules, and according to this extrapolation from this extra letter, based on this extra word, and why does it say it twice? So that means it's coming to teach us also this and this and this. He says, no, it's not permissible. That's where Judaism is happening. Judaism is not happening at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the opening for Judaism to begin to happen. Judaism does not happen in miracles, in revelations. That is all empowerment for Judaism to happen. And that's why, my dear friends, Mount Sinai is not a holy site for the Jews. One would think that Mount Sinai is our Mecca. We should always keep Mount Sinai. And nevertheless, even on the holiday in which the Mount Sinai revelation took place, we do not go to Mount Sinai. We go to Temple Mount. Temple Mount is forever holy, while Mount Sinai is not. And the question is why? Mount Sinai, read the verses. The entire mountain was smoking. There was fire. It was trembling. There was lightning. Everyone saw God. No one had it at Mount Sinai. I, I'm sorry, at Temple Mount. Temple Mount sounds, you know, there were miracles that took place, but nothing compared to Mount Sinai. No one ever left Temple Mount saying, mm, you know what God told me? But we all left Mount Sinai. God told me I am God, your God who took you out of Egypt. So why is Mount Sinai nothing, literally nothing? You can go camping on Mount Sinai. You can make a barbecue on Mount Sinai. Well, on Temple Mount, you're not allowed to even use it as a shortcut to go from one side of Jerusalem to the other side. Why? And the answer is because Temple of Mount Sinai was only the gateway for Judaism to take place. Temple Mount was Judaism taking place. So what I want to share with you is, we must continuously, what is Chabad? The word Chabad, what does it stand for? Chachma Bina Das, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. We must continuously not suffice with the words, I believe. The foundation is, I believe. But on top of the foundation, we need to build a building. I need to understand and question, what do I believe in? Why do I believe in it? But one second, I don't have to believe this no more because I know this. I don't need to believe what I know. 
Believing is about not knowing. And yet I believe. Hence what Moses is doing in the fifth book. He's taking the Mepiha from the mouth of God. And he's weakening the revelation, allowing for more room of the human mind. Because it's not about God landing on our mind. It's about our mind opening up to digest God. That's Judaism. And that's the Temple Mount. At Mount Sinai, we were overwhelmed and blinded. At the Holy Temple, we were structured. We had laws. We understood. Did this sacrifice, was it kosher, was it not kosher? How do we have to stand? What do we have to do? What do we have to say? At Mount Sinai, we were just trembling and dying. So understand the beauty of it all. Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, take it down a notch of divinity, up to humanity. We now have the rest of the four books. Take it down, down a notch divinity, up humanity. We now have the fifth book. Down a notch divinity, up another notch humanity. We now have only prophets. Take it down a notch. There's no more prophets now. There's only judges and scholars. And keep on taking it down a notch of divinity, upping the notch of humanity. And now we don't even have one verdict. We have the arguments between Hillel and Shammai that remained with the disputes. And Allah tells us to follow this one because majority wins. And there simply was more of Hillel students than of Shammai students, even though Shammai students were far superior. But the verse doesn't say the wisdom shall win. It says, Rabim. So we're going to use the humanity side of it. So understand, when you feel not inspired, when you learn something and you say, one second, you know, Rabbi Lipschitz is telling us Kabbalah and Hasidus, but it doesn't sound like it. It, it, it. It's kind of making sense. But if I went to a different place where they taught Kabbalah and over there, do, 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 72 letters levitating and this and that, now we're talking Kabbalah. No, my friends. No, my friends. Not at all. What every single one of our sages and our Rebbes and, and the Arizal and everyone, what they fought was to make it digestible. Don't levitate out of any Jewish experience. Walk out of a Jewish experience. Walk with your head busting. Like, wow, I, I get it. But one second, what's about this? Uh, this I don't get yet. But it says it in the book. This I have faith. But for yesterday's line that I couldn't understand and I only had faith in the truth of the Torah. I didn't understand the truth of the Torah. Today I understand that. So the line between faith and truth is a living organism that has to continuously be moving. Move up the intellect and then you're gifted in having faith in that which you didn't even know existed to have faith. And people, thank you.